0: Go!
1: Sniper arrow on the
0: guard. It strikes true. The guard drops. I move to the doorway. Detect traps. None detected. I enter.
1: Left flank. Right!
0: One hobgoblin Goblin facing east. Backstab. Double damage. Crickle hit. He's dead. Footsteps behind the door to the north.
1: I notch two arrows.
0: I climb the walls to get above the door. Five goblins enter from the north. I fire! Both arrows hit. Cleave! You kill one and wound another. I drop on the last one and grapple. You got a hold of him. This one is for Crouton. With his dying breath, he utters, <laughs> The Dark Lord! we we'll kill you all um, wait these things can talk i want two taken alive i want to try something spinning out of hero points the fire and water podcast network presents let's roll the show where Fire and Water hosts discuss various role-playing games with their guests and fellow tabletop gamers. This is Siskoid, and for this inaugural episode, I decided to get two players from one of my favorite role-playing experiences, Savage Worlds Evernight. First, you know him from the Lonely Hearts podcast, the recently engaged Marty.
2: Yep, and that's why we stopped the show, because I'm not lonely anymore. You were never lonely (laughs) on that
0: show. And the epidemiologist I have on Retainer, uh, he was on an episode of Gimme That Star Trek on that very subject earlier this year. Welcome to the show, Shalif.
1: Hello, everyone. I am, in fact, an epidemiologist.
0: Or should I be (laughs) calling you gentlemen Brim, Sunstone, and Arthas? Sure. Why not? No, yeah, I'm not going to do that for the whole show. <laughs> no, no,
1: no, no. You've committed to it. Yeah. This, is, it. this has to
0: happen. Because I call this one of my favorite role-playing experiences. Is that a sentiment shared across the group? Yeah,
2: definitely. It was, it was one of my favorites because, like, you know, after playing years of Dungeons & Dragons, playing this was, like, so refreshing because I had not played anything else. And I think the dynamic of the group, it was just one of those perfect groups where I felt we had like all the elements, all by accident. <laughs>
0: yeah, we should mention the other two players. Fern was also a lonely heart. Uh, played Vagrant, who was sort of a, a big dumb ox. Uh, David, who played Charles, who was a, like a like a, a real asshole. <laughs> I would, well, uh, you know, you know how he was. He, he was the looter of the group. He was like a half elf yeah. wizard, and he uh, would take magic items even if he couldn't use them. You know, yeah,
2: he would hoard them. That was the yeah. beautiful part. I think everyone like assumed their role playing at such an extreme that even if it didn't work for the game, but it worked for the character, they did it. Like that example of Dave taking the magic shard and like putting it inside him, but. <laughs> would have been way better for,
1: like, anyone else. <laughs> uh, but it was so in character. It was, like, and just to echo part of that, I think my favorite things were, I think it's the first campaign I ever played that was, like, episodic or, like, had a season arc because the only things I had played before that were uh, D&D and, I think, Dream Park. So Dream Park was very, like, one-shot after one-shot and D&D was mostly just kind of running through a half-baked module because we were in high school and we didn't know any better.
0: So this is like both of your first experiences with me as a game master in a, like an extended story? Yeah. I think
1: so, unless we did Doctor Who before. No, I think that was
2: after. I think I, that was after, yeah. I think this was my first experience of role-playing with you as a dungeon master.
0: Well, we're talking about 2010 to be clear. So this is like 10 years ago and hopefully our memories will be fairly sharp.
2: Yeah. No, it was such a good campaign. Like I, I don't know if you pushed for that Mike, but like all our characters we fit like the trifecta of like the triforce where like <laughs> Fern was playing like a fully physical character. He was not smart, had no spirit. He was just like a dumbass that was very strong. <laughs> and, you know, and I was just playing this character who was like, full spirit, had nothing else.
1: Just the but, willpower
2: of a god.
1: Yeah, just the willpower.
2: And then the other two were playing, like, more smart characters on their side, all about their minds. So, like, we had a good balance of characters that somehow just accidentally happens.
1: Yeah, I was the uh, pretentious ranged douchebag. But to your point, Brim, it's like... everyone committed to it so much and i think it's also the first time that everyone was dedicated to the role play that i played a game because whatever was entertaining and whatever followed the character is essentially the decisions that we made and i think none of us really cared i think i'm the one who cared the most about leaving out of there alive (laughs) (laughs) but for the most part it was kind of a you know what would be funny if i stole this magic shard
2: yeah or even just small role-playing things after when we like killed someone for some i don't even remember like the full origin of it but like we started burying bodies (laughs) yeah you did do that it was like one part because i was like playing a super religious character one part fern his character always had a shovel. He was a Shovel Knight before Shovel Knight was a thing. <laughs> and you was like, oh, it's respectful to like very bodies or something. And like, we just did that <laughs> and eventually came into the plot. But
0: yeah, I, I think for me, I, those are the elements of a like, it was a good campaign because of the dynamics between the characters. So I think the role play element was so on point. Let's just get into it, because now people don't know really what we were playing. So full warning, there's an important twist in this game in Evernight, and we're about to discuss it. So if you're a player in a group with plans to run the Evernight campaign, you may want to tune out. If the twist has already happened, which is really early in the game, really. And obvious. What is... Savage Worlds every night. Well, first you have to understand Savage Worlds is a quote-unquote universal system, which means it can be adapted to many settings and and has, but it has a definite I'd say pulp or cinematic flavor where heroes and that can include hero villains like powerful villains have an advantage over storm let's call them stormtroopers you know those faceless generic henchmen. The settings made for it tend to be very mm. imaginative though. There's no reason you couldn't use it for just you know, just any straight genre, straight or as wild as you would want to make it. Evernight is a fantasy setting that at first seems pretty normal with all the fantasy races you expect, swords, armor, magic. But suddenly, there's what is basically an alien invasion. And the skies are covered with smoke uh, so that the nocturnal invaders can thrive. And, uh well, I remember you guys wanting to play some classic sword and sorcery. You know, it's like... This is something that I, I really stopped playing for a long while because I overdosed on it in high school, which was like 20 years prior, but uh, or 20 <laughs> 25 years prior. But still, it, it's it you know because I was over D and D itself. Uh, I didn't really want to use that, which is the origin of this game. Uh, and I absolutely lied to you guys and let you believe that it would be a normal not multi-genre, no-twist campaign. So how did you take the twist?
1: Well, for me, at least, early on, I was like, oh, there's a big fire or there's a big something going on. We'll go through a couple of sessions and then the light will come back. But it never did. (laughs) And I don't know why, but it just kept a whole tenseness throughout the entire like it was it was a literal dark cloud <laughs> following us everywhere and i almost felt as like as a character that's like there's no rest there's no no breather there's no okay i finally made it to the next checkpoint town so i can kind of relax here it just it made the whole thing tense and it kind of gave it a sense of urgency that i think i took really to heart and it was really interesting but at the same time you lied to us <laughs> Course, was supposed
0: to be a classic sword and sorcery game <laughs> and still was really it still was it still was
2: yes yeah no that, it definitely still was because at the end of the day you can add an alien invasion but we're still using our swords and sorcery against aliens it's not that different than like an orc
0: They were played as fantasy monsters anyway. And as as the campaign developed, you found out they're part of this world's past and it was still a fantasy world. It's just those villains had escaped to another planet and now they were coming back the story is an alien invasion but the the trappings are certainly fantasy I think I sort of backdoored a, a few concepts in there because what, in, one interesting thing that I allowed and that would not be allowed normally in the game was Marty you wanted to play a dwarf uh, like yes. a fantasy dwarf and that's fine but also you wanted to play a sun priest which was one of the sort of professions that the the source book offered. That was very interesting because people worship the sun at some point, and it would make sense when once there's a big cloud cover and yet there is no sun, those become sort of the guides in that society or sort of like the, the, the sort of sustainers of hope. But dwarves cannot be sun priests in the game because they live underground and it's not part of their culture. It's like a human culture. But I allowed it, and I think that made, like, that was a core ingredient to the campaign to have a sun priest as part of the group. You had to marry those ideas.
2: Yeah. No, definitely, because the first thing I saw was the sun priest, and I read the little synopsis for uh, the campaign every night. That night becomes a constant. So I was like, oh, I want to be a sun priest. But I'm also, I always pick dwarves in, like, every single RPG I play. (laughs) If I can pick a dwarf, I pick a dwarf. Is there
1: a reason for that? Oh...
2: The reason is just I found dwarfs are cool. Like (laughs) it's just growing up, you know, watching Lord of the Rings. The dwarves are always the coolest race to me, and like even RPGs, online video games, I picked a dwarf. The music I listen to is almost like dwarf metal. There is no real reason apart from like they're cool. So I I definitely wanted to play a dwarf, and I just asked, and I was like, "Can I play a dwarf sun priest?" Kind of absentmindedly, and you are like, oh can make that work you're not supposed to but yeah but then we create a
0: backstory around it you know it's, it's like how would that oh no, yeah and that just becomes the character
2: the backstory wasn't oh he's just a some priest That that's it no i really created a whole mythology around it
0: where he crawled out of the mountain or <laughs> yeah well it's <laughs> <laughs> something like that was it <laughs> was it, like climbed out of the hole
1: one day and the sun hit his face yeah or it's
0: like a revelation yeah
1: but it was all a story
2: because i, I kept repeating that story to like all the npcs we met (laughs) but but just kept adding things (laughs) to that story i think by the end he was climbing out of the hole because he was being chased by like a thousand vampires and something like that
0: We're talking about character generation, uh, and I want to give Shalif a go, or Arthas. Like, I don't really want to dwell on the mechanics of a game on these shows. It's mostly about memories and, you know, what to remember about campaigns. What can we give as, as far as advice goes, or like for the feeling of a game? But they are part of the experience, so I thought I'd like list some of the elements and see what that turns up. And uh, character generation in Savage Worlds is a point-buy system, which means you have X number of points and you buy attributes and skills and edges, which are sort of like advantages. Everything from level-headed to combat reflexes to an arcane background that allows you to learn spells or miracles, like in Brim's case. And this can be offset by buying hindrances, like I don't know, phobias and codes of conduct. So if we talk about those character choices, we've heard from Marty, Sharif, you you had like a musketeer in the sense that you you had a gun and um, also an arrogant jerk. So my question to you is, is this an improv reflex? Because we're all improv players. I uh, almost exclusively play with improv players. And (laughs) I feel sometimes, and you can confirm this or infirm this, but... I feel like improv players often start from a position of what is the character's biggest foible fault rather than (laughs) – what is the thing that will make him fun and interesting and funny rather than what makes him great? Yeah, that's a good point. Or is it just, you know, it's you. It's
1: (laughs) 20-year-old you. Okay, well anyone who knows me knows that it's at least in some part twenty year old me. The other part though is me as a role player, my early tabletop RPG days were very focused on like, you know, that, that kind of video game mindset of okay, how do I get the best equipment? How do I get the best the most experience points? How do I stay alive? How do I get stronger? And as that character went on, he was less and less interesting and less and less fun to play with. So, this was like my chance to make something fun. Or, if not fun, at least interesting. And Arthas became. I'm looking at my character sheet right now. Hindrances arrogant, big mouth, stubborn, and a major phobia of masks. <laughs> I forget why. <laughs> Why the mask thing? Here yeah we are. but he
0: was supposed to be sort of a yeah, a young aristocrat.
1: yeah, he's essentially a d'Artagnan right okay. but less personable less a paragon of virtue and more yeah.
0: Or about himself. Did you come to regret, you know, like muskets, they're not like normal guns. You know, they're ranged weapons, but you you, you get to stuff a ball in there and some gunpowder every time. And I remember that first battle, one of those first battles where, you know, there was like orcs in, in a mountain pass or something. And I remember your character having trouble, like, you know, getting a shot only every two rounds or something. Was that, did you, did you feel any regret? As to your choices at that point, everybody else sort of piled on on the the one guy that is not doing (laughs) as much in the battle, and he also is very arrogant. So this guy thinks he's the cat's meow, but in fights, he was nearly useless (laughs) compared to some of the others. But didn't he also do a lot of killing blows?
1: Which only fed his ego because he got that last shot yeah.
0: in. <laughs> Everybody else drained. Yeah, no, <laughs> it was yeah. like
1: everyone's piling on, all of a sudden I get off my shot, which was I think the most damage at the table, other than maybe spells. And all of a sudden I'm just going like, Well, of course. You had you had to wait until I was ready. Like the team essentially <laughs> became a defensive shield because the whole point of the
0: battle was to let me do the work, right? Keep him occupied until you snipe them. Exactly. That was
2: one of the funny things I felt like. It's one of those games where luck worked both ways because I remember sessions where we'd be fighting and Matt would just be shooting his gun and not getting any shots off <laughs> at all. <laughs> like the whole fight. And then got like some random one-hit shot and like killed the guy and it was and then he would celebrate and we all be like oh, congrats <laughs> you got one
0: shot off. the way this the game works is instead of straight numbers for attributes and skills uh, you get higher and higher dice types so if, if you're if you're just learning a skill I mean, it might only use d uh, d4 and then a d6, and then a d8, d10, d12. It stops at d12. And the hero characters also throw a d6 every time as a wild die, and they can choose its result instead of the other one. If you got the highest possible, let's say a six on a d6, you got to re-roll that dice and uh, add it to infinity. You know, if you keep rolling a six on a six-sided die, you keep rolling that dice, and it blows up <laughs> the number. Uh, and, uh, you know... Uh, heroes suffer wound levels, henchmen are just killed outright as soon as they get hit because they're not important. That allows you to do, like, really multi-kills, like critical, critical, critical hits. You know, when we say that luck works both ways, when the luck is good... It can be very good. And that's sort of the origin of the, of the Order of the Shovel, uh, which is what the group was eventually known as. Can you tell that story?
2: No, it was one of our first encounters. I think it's, it must
0: be the first.
2: And yeah. it was the first big bad, right? Well, big bad. It was the
0: first big bad. You had to rid the basement of a place. The world was going to be overrun with rats because of the darkness. But even before the darkness, there's a rat infestation. And the, you know, it's just like these, you're just learning how to do a fight. So here's your... yeah. Easy encounter with hordes of rats in a basement. That's all it yeah, is. Yeah, but,
1: but were the hordes big and were they bad? Tell me how I was wrong.
2: <laughs> it was a big, back horde of rats. And I remember uh-uh. Fern doing a special technique of, like, there was a hole or something and, like, hit his shovel so hard on that, like, rat hole that it sent, like, a shockwave. Shockwave of death that killed all the rats in, like, one hit. I think that's where the order of the shovel started, if I remember correctly. Because I remember the cutout. It was a cutout of rats. It was a big rat pile. Yeah,
0: yeah. One of the things that we decided, maybe spur of the moment, I know this is like game theory that I've talked to Fern about, either before or after. But the idea that when you do like this super critical, even, you know, whatever the action is, it has to mean something. And here we decided it meant, you know, there was a legend born. Except it's just mm-hmm. about rat killing. That's all it is. So what is this legend? And then I guess things started to turn around. The fact that he was using a shovel as a battle implement. And uh, you guys became the order of the shovel. You made like this logo for it. And uh, eventually I think Fern had like a golden shovel. Mm-hmm. He traded up. Here's your plus one shovel. That kind of stuff.
1: The shovel became the rallying cry of the oppressed humans in this post-alien world.
0: Yeah,
2: and also tied into my character, which, full honesty, that character, that whole archetype, I just stole from an anime I watched at the time. His whole thing in Nagin, if anyone's seen that, like the main character in that starts to show where he wants to dig up because he lives underground. That's where I took that from. So that was the origin of my character. I wanted to dig up and see the sun. So that tied into the shovel, too.
0: So there's a strange theme that you did not work on it together; it just like happened.
2: And wasn't our like home base underground? Eventually, team?
0: yeah. My character was
1: a tool, so the shovel works as well. <laughs> and so was
0: Dave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But another mechanic I loved about the, about Savage Worlds is the common knowledge roll. Uh, And I've ported this over to other games because one of the things that's tough when you want to play in a setting that has its own history and culture, like here, the country was called Valusia. You don't want to require the players to read loads of background material, you know? So instead, uh, when something comes up that a particular character might logically know, you know, because they live in that world, you don't need Mm -hmm. like a skill to, to, like Marty doesn't need a skill to know about anime. He just lives in that world. But imagine you were playing somebody who was skilled and you know, knew everything about anime, but himself did not. Well, he would roll a common knowledge roll in this game, just like a smarts roll with an easy bonus. And that allows the game master to do a bit of exposition. And in combination with good rolls, uh, even the dumbest character could know a lot of information. I think we had such aberrations consistently with Fern's warrior, Vagera, <laughs> Um because he, he really played it dumb. He really, re really, you know, Fern is always going to go full caricature if he can. Yeah. yeah. Like the boss. Yeah. No, no, he was really <laughs> stupid, but he was the local boy. So he, common knowledge, seemed normal for him. And uh, he rolled some doozies and somehow he was like an encyclopedia at times.
1: Which was great because for me and my character being, you know, in the king's court or whatever it was who prided himself on being the best at everything. I was consistently getting one-upped by a peasant. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it, like I'll use a fake example, because I can't remember one right now, but like, oh, these structures seem almost alien. And then, <laughs> and then I go, my character would go, oh, well, surely it has something to do with XYZ. And then Vagrant would go, duh, boss, I think it has to do with the, the 1758 architectural <laughs> change... Or whatever it is.
0: I mean, those are rules that also help you because as a character from the aristocracy, once we got to Kingsport and King's Landing, I don't know if the game stole that from George R.R. R. Martin or vice versa, but <laughs> but the once you got to that
2: big city... I mean, there, there are many King's Landing. We live near one, Mike. That's true. There is a King's Landing here. <laughs> 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 Closer
0: to where Shalif is right now, but the—I the, mean—that idea was that you know, if we got to the city, suddenly you're the guy that knows everything, that has contacts with everyone, that knows the courtly no. things to do, the etiquette, because it is your common knowledge. Uh, and uh, you know, we visited dwarves, and we vis- maybe we didn't visit elves, and it's like, screw you, Dave, but. The, the idea was everybody had their piece of knowledge that they could access through this rule. So that's something that I like in Savage Worlds, and it's very useful.
2: I don't want to play a game without that, like, common knowledge rule, ro- because it's just so fun, because it is annoying. Sometimes you're like, does my character know about this? And it's like, well, no, he knows nothing of potions, but... They would know, like... they know something. They'd knowledge, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah the, the game also includes hero points, uh, sort of, like a hero point mechanic. They're called bennies in this game. Oh, uh,
2: the bennies.
0: You can use them to re-roll, to absorb damage, etc. Uh, we also use that optional adventure deck that you can... Uh, Print out cards that create effects, reversals. And there's the whole initiative mechanic that makes you draw from a normal deck of cards, and then you go in order of highest to lowest.
2: Those were my favorite moments of the game, like the Bennies and the cards. Because I mean you could do a lot of things. You could just like hoard the cards and wait for the perfect moment, or just use them whenever, just for a small thing. I think there's no bad way of using them. The Bennies, I love the Bennies because it brought so much comedy at moments. Like we were talking about earlier, I remember this one part where Matt was just trying to get this one shot off to like be the hero of the moment, and he had a bunch of bennies. So he's like, oh, "I'll use one, reroll," and he failed. Oh, "I'll just use another benny," and he failed, and he failed. Again and again, (laughs) until he had no bennies whatsoever. He failed the shot, and like I think he almost killed all of us. (laughs) And it was just like a perfect comedy moment where you want to be the hero, but fate was like, no, this is going to be like... The dice had spoken. <laughs> yeah, this is they your joke what to
0: Yeah, I think the most useful element of Savage Worlds for me is the concept of plot points. It's not true of every setting they've put out, but uh, some, like Evernight, are really like they, they're ready-made campaigns. You not only get a setting, but the various story beats that can take the character from lowly novices to veteran or legendary figures. And if you're going to play for a long time, you spread them out in between other adventures that you make up. But we really, we fast-tracked it. It was, you know, I was very free with experience points, let you level up at a natural speed, because we decided that this was going to be a mini-series. We started in the summer, and we wanted it to be done before Christmas, and I think we finished, like, in October. I only used the so-called plot points, uh, and that had two functions for me. One was moving the big picture forward with each session. And the second was introducing elements of the mechanics and the world in natural increments. You just started out, okay, let's learn about combat. But then every game, especially early on, you learned like a different concept of the game that was, okay, this is how you use that thing. Or you meet somebody that's much more powerful and you say, okay, that's my future. And that's what I got to work towards in terms of my choices when I level up. Let's talk about that big picture you know, the, the overall campaign. You started as lowly level one characters, let's call them. That's not really the terms uh, in Savage Worlds. They're called novices. And then you got through seasoned, and then you got to veteran. You never got to legendary. The more you went, the more important you were to that world. Mm-hmm.
2: That was the the coolest thing about Evernight, I think. Because other RPGs I played, like Dungeon Dragons even long form campaigns sure you killed the big bad of that story campaign or whatever but then it feels like that it doesn't really matter <laughs> because even in a tavern you're just like oh yeah there's a dragon and lives there if you want to kill it ah. <laughs> you know that's how it feels sometimes that whole
1: concept of seasons or series is something that i've tried to put in into my own dming afterwards because to your point Brim, you know it's like oh you've killed the bad guy for this season arc now we'll just introduce another bigger better guy you can only do that ad nauseum until it you know it feels like nothing whereas this like mike was saying you know novice to veteran and we didn't reach legendary, but at the end of the series certainly felt legendary. We had like inserted ourselves... Into the mythos Of this entire world Like we became the stuff of legends At least yeah. that's how I'm deciding to No
0: but I mean it's true <laughs> that, that that's what happened Because one of the mechanics of the game Was to accumulate Resistance points And uh, I had a note somewhere that said I don't know which one of you It, it may have been Dave or Fern <laughs> Who said I don't know what resistance points are But I want them
2: <laughs> that's oh, That, like was, that, that yeah. was Dave He yeah. <laughs> really wanted
0: them (laughs) Well, he was very covetous of things. His character was very greedy. But, but, you know, resistance points is like something that... Well, you got an idea of why you were getting them. You know, you were giving hope to the people. And that builds uh, resistance points. And I assured you, I I imagine, that they would become useful later. And they only become useful at the very end. At the very end of the game, you're fighting these monstrosities. You're discovering what... You know, at first, you don't even know what's going on. No, You know, it's, it's not like there's... A news service in a fantasy world. you just like, what What the hell just happened? It's the apocalypse, basically. And uh, so you find out what happened. You join like a resistance cell that previously existed. That's the part where you're living in the sewers. You know, you're getting these resistance points every time you meet people and like get them on your side. So, for example, there were moments, because there was like a bit of quest giving in that middle part where it's like the resistance cell leader mm-hmm. would say, well, okay, guys, uh, we need... Um, You know, we need one of these groups to. Potable water. Yeah, like go get some some fruit or save the daughter of this dwarven king or, you know, there was all sorts of things. And then on the adventure, you would learn more about what was happening. But also, you would get promissory notes, basically. Like the orcs would say, thanks for helping us. Uh, You know, usually we're enemies, but not now. So if you ever need help, will be there. Same with the dwarves, same with different groups. So that at the end, when you, it becomes like a big, epic battle, first of all, who did you get on your side? And they're going to join that battle. It's going to be five armies. And then also, the more resistance points you had, the more bonuses and army units that you got to command when when the game started kind of turned into a war game at the end.
2: Definitely one of the coolest character advancements I had lived through because you can really tell like I remember uh, Fern's character at first just you know we were just kind of a ragtag team by the end like Fern was like a folk hero and like kids loved him and stuff like that I remember I put a quirk on me which was like um, a hindrance of like I always talked religion which at first was just like kind of this funny thing which I annoyed characters but at the end I was giving like sermon wide speeches to the whole town Which really rallied the whole town.
1: Yeah, that's the thing.
2: This one thing that was just like to be like we jokingly said, oh, yeah, I'll be so obsessed about religion that characters will find me annoying. So it's a hindrance. But all of a sudden, that hindrance became like one of the main driving points of rallying the the forces.
1: Brim, if I recall correctly... In terms of legends and myths of the world, you essentially like your character ended up becoming like you know a martyr of the sun god or, or whatever it was.
0: Yeah, let's yeah. talk about that because for the good of the people. Because one of the things that you can do when you say we're going to play a mini series, and this is useful. Like I know a lot of people role play, and you know they want that unlimited campaign. They meet every week, or whatever. that's what I did when I was a teenager. You know, you meet every week, you play every week. That game, that story will never end. You know, and that's how you're playing it. But the mini series is useful for. You know, like adults with lives and we're who who gonna like move away yeah. or have problems getting <laughs> yeah. together. So, if you know it's a mini series and it's more compact, it's easier to invest in. But the other thing that it does, you know, there's an end point. Marty, at the end of the, you know, when we were reaching the finale, I asked each player individually and privately where they saw this going for them, where they wanted the character to end up. And then I would create those opportunities. And you could take them or fail at them or whatever, but the opportunities were there. What could happen? In your case, you actually decided... Already, that you were ready for your character to sacrifice himself somehow. So you you are the only of the four characters who decided to sacrifice Brim Sunstone at the end. So this is not something you would do if you were in mm-hmm. like in a continuous campaign and you wanted that character to keep growing. But knowing that it it's final, you can create that moment. Why did you choose that? And uh, you know what goes into that decision?
2: Well, I chose that because, like I said earlier, I based this character of oh. this anime I just watched. <laughs> And that character in that show also dies. Spoilers for login fans, I guess, or you <laughs> to watch it. But since I base my character like loosely, like you wouldn't, like if you watch the show, you you wouldn't be like, oh, that's Brim. Like, <laughs> but I was like thinking of that. I was like, oh, that's the origin of the character. Maybe I should have the same type of ending to it. But I think it was a very good choice. And also, there's some obvious. Uh, Jesus allegory where, you know, I'm like the prophet of sun, sun priest. and I die. So yeah, I thought it was fitting. It, it would throw off the others because I remember like you said, we, you said to put it in like secret. So we all like told you individually. The ending. So I was like, oh, that could be a shock just for like for everyone else.
0: Was it a shock?
1: It was, for sure. I because... didn't expect it because, I mean, the, the whole group had done so well. And I think we gathered a pretty large amount of resistance points. And I was like, oh, yeah, we got this. We got this. And then all of a sudden, it's like we don't got this. And Brim comes and saves the day. It was sad. It was good. It was, I mean, it obviously it left an impression because we're 10 years later talking
0: about it. Do you it. remember what your ending was?
1: I think mine was in line with the character, which was essentially pretentious douche lives his life, hoping to become the top pretentious douche. And I think I became like advisor to the King or something.
0: And the King was Vagrant, So the dumb ox became King.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So that was
0: like a humorous twist. The unlikely unlikely king. The shovel became like the symbol of the kingdom eventually. And I have no idea what happened to Dave.
1: Honestly,
2: (laughs) I have no
0: We should have asked him. Uh, he probably had a pile of loot yeah, somewhere. Yeah, sitting on a pile of loot.
2: Yeah, I don't remember either what happened to Dave. It's funny. Interesting character in that, because he was like part of the group, but also like he wasn't. No, I, yeah.
1: <laughs> he essentially, we, we were a useful means to his ends.
0: Yeah, but I, I've played with those kind of devious characters before, and uh, it was never like that. You've always, you know, that, that mm. character is always like, you know, scheming and really like, you know, the the, the person that wanted to play an evil character inside a good group. This wasn't that.
1: No, Dave wasn't evil. He was just greedy.
0: <laughs> yeah, greedy and selfish.
1: Like, it's weird because, no, you're right. Usually that kind of role play goes terribly wrong. But with the people we had around the table and no one getting actually angry that, you know, he stole your magic musket. or You
0: know what it is about that dynamic? And you're lucky if you can get that because each of the characters had a trait that would be normally around a normal role-playing table, would be super annoying to the others. So somebody would get frustrated <laughs> that Fern was playing so dumb. Like, you are illogically right. dumb. You know, yeah. you're making dumb mistakes on purpose, and we hate it. Athras Shalif, you are such a jerk, such an arrogant ass. You are not useful. You're a pain in the ass. And I, I don't know if that's your actual personality or the characters same with dave he was like he's hoarding magical items that he can't even use and bonding to them so that
2: no one can (laughs) so that yeah he was a wizard and he bonded with like a strength gem so he was like weirdly buff so
0: it's like well no you should have given that to somebody else come on, too bad and and so normally i can hear him go if you wanted the crystal you should have taken it yeah. <laughs> yeah, So, I mean, normally around a table, and even like Brim pontificating, yeah.
2: Yeah, I kept retelling the same story of how I found my religion over and over through every NPC. And I thought one of you was like going to slap me. But no, you guys all sat there and listened. <laughs> everybody got
0: everybody else's joke. So that all of these were like extreme personalities. They were joke personalities. And everybody got the joke, right. and everybody just laughed at it. And said, okay, well, Dave just stole our magic item. I think that would be like the most egregious uh, behavior around a a role playing table. You just took my magic item, but it's part of your shtick. It's part of your joke. So I'm laughing and And pointing and making comments (laughs) and making it my joke. Like my character thinks you're an ass, not me. I think you're an ass. You, the player. That fact, like everybody's on the same team as far as even what we're trying to do tonally. I think that's the magic of that group.
2: Yeah, or even Fern's character would have been too dumb to like know that he needed that gem more than him. And my character was too like proud to even think that he needed it. It just all worked.
0: Uh, We're talking about the, the war game element at the end. I don't know if that worked because I prefer theater of the mind to miniatures, but some edges, especially Mm -hmm. the ones we picked, really work best with a real battle map in front of you. And uh, anyway, Savage Worlds often has figure flats, they call them, uh, which are basically miniatures that you can print out and fold into like triangles to represent heroes and monsters. So we did that. And I mean, mean, I'm going to put a lot of these images on the Fire and Water website. Visually, it made for if there was like a scale difference, if your characters are small compared to like uh, an alien monster, that would show up visually. You know, it's not just in the mind. But also that battle at the end, we can use the table, i use the living room. You could see that it was like, a, this is what you're up against. These are all the miniatures in the game. Suddenly, you know, you're, you're facing everything and everyone. Like every time I do that, I've done like these big battles in the past because I have an interest in war games, but I'm not very good at them. So, and I mean, I want to fudge it a lot because I think war games can take a long, long time. And I don't want to be playing Axis and Allies, basically. I don't know if it works in practice. You tell me. I mean, do you remember that final battle?
1: Yeah, almost too
0: much, I think.
1: Or maybe I made up the details in my mind. But I remember, like, the the whole town, the siege, running through the streets, stuff falling from the sky. But I also remember it was, like, it was a mass battle, and you felt that it was massive. But we experienced it through, like,
0: vignettes. right? And I think I, one of the things that... I don't know if the game tells you to do this. I'm not sure, but... Certainly, that's what my notes show is that I sent each of you guys on a different mission so that, you know, you each had your little bit that that really was about your character. And if they were generals in this... What was their unit doing? And that allowed for Brim to be on that suicide mission, basically. You know, that allowed for these different events to take place. And then there's the siege. You know, it's like you're doing these things and then you run to the siege, basically, with your units and fight it out. And I think, yes, there there were vignettes because I wanted to have, we're playing a war game at this point, but I want those character moments. I wanted that role-playing moment inside the war game, so that was important. And I know, you know, by the end, the epilogue is all like, "Let's play music," and there's montage, and you. And this is where we learn about the the funeral of the sun priest, and you know, the, the crowning of Vagrant, and all of these things are happening in sort of a montage. That was Savage Worlds Evernight. Any last thoughts on on this game before we go?
2: It's one of those games. Uh, I'm not sure. If it was good as I remember it. It, were, it was just nostalgia at this point, 10 years. But even at that time, I remember thinking, oh, this is such a great <laughs> session. And I think what did it for me was those bennies and the mechanic of like doing a heroic moment was always fun. Cause half the time it didn't feel like we used our weapons. It was just like we figured out something. We used a casket to explode something or whatever. So that was a lot of fun. Just figuring out the puzzle on the fly.
1: Yeah, it was essentially, it was an exercise in storytelling. I think the whole episodic nature, the whole series or season arc, you know, using vignettes for the wargaming part. I think that's the biggest, from like a broad tabletop RPG sense, that's the biggest thing I got out of this is, you know, making the characters feel like, characters on a show not just characters placed in a world Mm -hmm. and that made a huge difference in terms of the enjoyment at the table and of course some of the mechanics like the bennies or like the deck of cards with the jokers give you an opportunity for those moments to pop up where it's like and then the hero slipped use a benny but wait (laughs)
2: yeah
1: actually he jumped or something
2: (laughs) well that was the the brick thing because let's be honest with rpgs we know we're going to beat the monster but for this, it was really like, we know we're going to beat it, but how are we going to beat it?
0: I think there was a lot of enthusiasm around the table at the time. I don't think it's just nostalgia, because my notes show that on two occasions, we played twice in the same week. So yeah. this was uh, we, we were running through it. So I want to thank my guests, Brim Sunstone and Arthas the Arrogant, or as you might know them, Marty and Shalif. I'll let you go back to your respective realms, gentlemen. I'll... Be back after the promo break with a feature we call Game Master Advice. Thanks again, boys. Thanks, Thanks Game Master.
2: <laughs> Do you think of yourself primarily as a singer or as a poet?
1: Well, I think of myself more as a song and dance man, you know. <laughs> you may call him Alias. You may call him Lucky Wilberry. You may call him Bobby, you may call him Zimmy, but the world calls him Bob Dylan. It's Pod Dylan, the only podcast dedicated to celebrating the work of Bob Dylan. Pod Dylan, hosted by the freewheeling Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, examines Bob Dylan's discography one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Pod Dylan is available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher.
0: if I were dungeon master I'd have it made what an interesting proposition very well I shall give you
2: all my power to use as you will
0: this is the section where we might do uh, listener feedback but this is really the inaugural episode so one of the things I'll personally do a column called game master advice I really want to talk about party traditions today when you put Battle Shovel in a research engine, you get loads of material about video game Kickstarter sensation Shovel Knight. Marty mentioned it. And good on you, Sir Knight. You figured out what my roleplaying group did 10 years ago. The Shovel is a great fantasy weapon. So you heard the story, uh, the rookie characters went to a house basement to rid the town of a rat infestation. One of these characters was, by all accounts, a dumb cluck from the countryside, raised on a farm, had little in the way of equipment, but he clung to the shovel his paw gave him on the farm, and in a pinch, it could be used as a club, or as a blade, or as a quarterstaff. Heck, you might even need it to dig a hole. And in that basement, the flat side of the shovel could flatten several rats at a swing, and the player rolled the critical list of critical hits, which not only made short work of the pests, but also called for a legend to be born in the minds of the NPC villagers. The shovel fight became, as per the rules of our game, legendary. And so the order of the shovel was born. The party took its name from the incident, put a shovel on their standard, never got rid of the farming implement, even upgraded it, and you know you've got something special when you're tempted to include magical shovels in your game as loot. There's a lesson for both players and GMs in that example. Yes, the story is a little silly, but when we think back to the various games we've played, it's what makes the Savage Worlds miniseries stand out. More than the cool twist, more than the Peter Jackson-directed Final Battle, the shovel incident and the tradition it spawned are what made it special and memorable. The lesson, then, is that role-playing groups could do a lot worse than create their own traditions. Of course, these should feel organic. You can't always force a tradition into being. But there are three basic ways to make sure it happens, whether you're a player or a GM. First, you can do it in character generation. When you're setting your campaign up, you might have an idea that would distinguish your group from any other playing the same game. Hey, what if we gave all our characters a proficiency in the same sport and acted like a sports team in and out of combat. What if no character was who they said they were and kept the truth from all but the GM? How would the game then evolve? What if our heroes left a calling card each time they solved a crime? Do the bards write a song about every adventure? Built into the premise of the game, such quirks make the specific group or campaign memorable, though without the the thrill of discovering it. Let's say you do it organically. Something happens in the early chapters of your game. You jump on it. It becomes a thing. Some would say inside jokes have no place in the game universe, even if they're pretty common around the table. I say different. Whether personal to one character or common to anyone in the group, the odd quirk or recurring motif is something you can lean into. An example uh, from my teenage years. I improvised a gnome merchant once and exaggerated the description of his mighty nose the players started avoiding it physically whenever I turned my head as if it were enormous. That was such a fun gag, a lot of merchants and contacts from then on were cast as gnomes, just so they could have fun with the the joke again. Your motif can also have a plot function. In my Doctor Who game, the players were given a chance to pick a bad wolf arc for the season, and tweaking on a background detail about Norse mythology, essentially, they made me include a Norse reference in every adventure, until it culminated in an epic finale. uh, It inspired me to use Fenric, in fact. Players and GMs alike can notice what could be a fun or interesting tradition and try to bring it back. And you can do it mechanically. Many games have a critical hit or miss mechanic. Some have dice rolls that blow up. Others still, some kind of renown or fame stat. Any of these can be used to decide what becomes important, a potential tradition in a game. When the players manage an astounding feat, an exciting thing, even around the table, imagine getting bonus dice when you roll doubles and you keep rolling doubles several times until you just went cosmic with your success. It should be noted and celebrated in some way. It's the thing the heroes are known for, whether that's a success or a failure. It means something... To the population at large, it becomes a reputation that precedes, or maybe haunts them, and it will affect the game from then on. The players can use it as branding, like the Order of the Shovel, or get hassled by NPCs all the time. It could start a tradition of similar tactics in the future, or imbue the involved object with magical power. It's up to you, but again, you need to identify the potential tradition, and then go with it. My original example had a mix of all three techniques. The player thought it would be funny in Character Generation to give his character a battle shovel because he came from that farming background. Then, early on, he rolled an insane critical hit on an action that really didn't need you know, that kind of success. Uh, low-level opponents, and that created a legend, as mundane as it was on paper. Then, organically, the players leaned into it, decided it was their brand, drew a special crest, introduced themselves with it. It became a symbol, not just of the party in-game, but of the whole mini-campaign. Every memorable game I've played had its traditions. Every forgettable one didn't. I strive to find those opportunities, and and I hope this episode has helped you find yours. I'll leave you on this note. We do have a Patreon here at fireandwaterpodcast.com. So if you like this content, you would like more like it, feel free to go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts and leave it one time or a monthly donation. Every little bit helps keep this network in business and service since the hosting fees are, of course astronomical at this point. And the next time I do this, I would like to have some feedback that I could relate. So please leave your comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Spotify, and Twitter. Until next time, let's roll.